Welcome to Old Town New World. We're here at Millstone Pizza in Old Town Rock Hill, South Carolina. I'm Jason Broadwater. I'm Chris Gervais. And we're here to talk about the ever-changing world of Small Town USA. With us today, uh, as always, of course, the wise, uh, silent Micah. Micah? Well said, well played. Uh, we also have with us uh, Spectator John. Spectator John? Don't say anything. <laughs> nice, nice, well played. And of course, my main man, Chris Gervais. What's up? Actually, I take that back. You're not my main man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I said that. I need, I need, I need a catchphrase. I need to invent a catchphrase. Zumba. How you feel about <laughs> stuff? All right, you're fired. <laughs> but, um, I can't call you my main man. I'm going on record saying that. My son is my main man, and I can't call anybody else that. Can you call me your little man? Yes. That's quite weird, but we'll roll with that. And our actual guest, the only serious participant in this endeavor, is Mr. Joe Strummer. No, Joe Miller. Welcome, Joe. Hi. All right, well said. Can you elaborate? No. Already sure. more than Joe Strummer would have given us. Yeah, right. Um, okay. Isn't he dead? Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah, so I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay, so Joe, you're friends with Chris, and that's how we got you here. You work in Rock Hill. Where are you from? Um, I am from the mega city of Clover, South Carolina. Oh, no way. Really? Did yeah. you go to high school in Clover? I did. Class of 96. Rock on. It was rocking, yes. Yeah. My <laughs> wife is actually the counselor out of Bethany Elementary out in Clover. My kids are in the Clover School District. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great uh, country town to grow up in. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Very cool. So, you do... Um, there, there was a big punk rock scene in Clover, though, in the I, 90s. Yeah, yeah. actually, um, I have fond memories. We had a, we had a benefit concert for uh, a friend called Lollipop Losers, which I got to, <laughs> I got to play at, and it was... Uh, it was uh, an early phase where everybody was doing cool stuff and I got to be exposed to it. Some guys from Rock Hill came out, um, minor threat cover bands and nice. yeah, it was fun. Okay, well let me, let's first get a sense of what you do now and then we'll kind of get into how you, you got to what you do now, but tell us what you do now. Um, I am a music producer, sound designer, and audio engineer. See, that sounds awesome. Like where does one, how does one do that? Where, where do you do that from? Um, I've got a, a small production studio um, in the BTC building across from York Tech. Oh yeah, I know it, absolutely. Sure, yeah. So, so did you, I mean, I guess you get your work on the internet? No, um, a lot of people would think that, but it primarily comes from, uh, from personal connections and networking. I do get some work on the internet. Um, I'll catch gigs from, from all over the country, um, but the majority of the stuff are, are people you know, that I'm, I meet and know locally that just keep hiring me for some reason. So who needs this kind of work and for what? Oh, I do all kind of stuff. I mean, the hardest thing usually when it's hard for me to answer the question, hey, what do you do for a living? Um, you know, what do you do? It's, it's a lot of different things. Um, I'll score dozens of, of commercials and corporate videos every year. I average a couple of films, a couple of shorts, maybe one feature every year. So what is score? What do you mean by score? Write, write and produce the music that, huh. that accompanies the film or, or a commercial. Or commercial. Or yeah, recently we did, uh, uh, by we I mean me, uh, 
<laughs> you trained yourself to be I plural. Have. Dude, I know. I started a business, yeah. too. I understand what that means. I'm sorry. First thing you do is train yourself to be plural. Yeah. Yeah. So that's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you have to put on a persona as an entrepreneur, and yeah. that's uh, basically what it is when you're schlepping yourself out in the world. Um, so, yeah. Um, we produced uh, several tracks for... Uh, I don't even know if, if my if I should say the company name because I think it's make a NDA. fake make a fake one. Then. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a giant tire company, and they were doing um, cross promos for all of their sporting sponsorships, and they sponsor racing, uh, NBA, um, Major League Soccer, um, bicycling. Cool. You know, di- cool. different stuff like that. So at the beginning of the year, I got the contact, and the guy said, "You know, we need five tracks, and you know, can you do it?" Yeah, sure, and you know, you do the business stuff, and then you do the music stuff, and so when you do the music stuff, are you playing instruments recorded by microphones, or are you programming it into a computer that's generating the sound? I I always try and go for live, and um, I try and convince the clients that live is better, and real musicians are better because it's true. Um, but more and more with the way technology works, I'm I'm pushed into into the box and clients know that you can produce a, a real high quality product from from the computer using samples so uh, the majority of the work is is uh, me sitting at a computer I, I play guitar I mean that was my my background and training so all the guitar stuff I play in um, and then you know I've got a lot of experience with other music stuff yeah. so writing for orchestra or other band instruments is not that hard for me. So. so to be clear, there are tiny little magic people inside the computer playing instruments, right? right? Yeah. Little like yeah. gnome type people. Yeah. Actually, yeah, that's true. Um, and the gnome, the gnome type people were recorded at another uh, space and time continuum. Yeah. Um, well, either way, I hope you take care of them. I, well, they take care of themselves. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, it, actually, I mean, in the the way it works, I mean, the the music industry has changed in such a, a way that people that are producing sample libraries often will create compensation for the performers that come in and play one note at a time. So these these LA session players that sit in a great recording studio and, and allow their technique and their instrument to be sampled will get kickbacks from sample libraries. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. Cool, yeah. In some cases. Not not everybody operates that way. So but, is that yeah. kind of like a microeconomy in the way that like Pandora or something is a microeconomy? Like little ch- tiny bits of, you got to remember, okay, 10 cents to this person and 3 cents to that person. And yeah, and mu- music's always been that way, um, all the way back through the history of film scoring. When I was uh, in Pittsburgh, um, the the violin instructor whose office was right beside mine she would get checks every year because she played on indiana jones and she played on jaws and she played on all these great film scores when she was 20 um and now she's 50 and or whatever and she still gets royalties from those films as a performer that's fantastic okay so you've dropped a couple of mentions of as you were trained being in philly so let's back up so you graduate from Clover High School, and then what happens? Um, graduated from Clover High School, and the only thing of interest in my life was music. So when it was dictated that I was going to college, the only thing I was interested in studying was music. Um, I got a, a jazz guitar performance degree from Winthrop, and uh, graduated there in '03. Um, I taught there from '04 to '06. At which point, I was told I had to have a master's if I wanted to keep teaching. And um, 
at that time, I, I was convinced I wanted to spend the rest of my life as a music educator teaching well, wait, in college. Masters of the Universe? Yeah, absolutely. You okay. can get that degree. All right, yeah. good. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I went to Pittsburgh because um, I got a graduate assistantship from them. At what school? Duquesne. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you go to school in Pittsburgh, and a couple of years later I come back and I taught at Winthrop from 08 to 012, and that's when I left and started the business. So, huh. Yeah. So you're kind of done with academia for now? Unfortunately, I would love that if the ideal vision of what I believed academia was going to be, I would have loved it if that had worked out. But there's a there's a an economy and a and a bureaucracy that makes colleges work, and sometimes that doesn't really jive with hopes and dreams. You know? No, so, I hear you, man. Yeah. I hear you. You guys are kind of twin souls in some of that stuff yeah. you say. Yeah. yeah. So I was I was adjunct, and there's there's tons of uh, information you're out not there. Junk. Yeah, I was. Oh, no, that's how they treat you. Yeah, yeah. So you go go and read some articles about the uh, adjunct culture in higher education right now, and you'll realize that from an economic point of view, it's uh, it's fairly disparaging. Yeah. Um, and it got to the point where I was making more money on nights and weekends writing music than I could make teaching, and it was a it was a financial thing that I was forced out of education. Yeah. Because they don't pay shit. Yeah, I hear you, man. <laughs> well, you know, it's like they so. say, uh, children are the future. Uh, don't pay teachers a whole lot. Right. <laughs> well, that's the common wisdom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> great, great uh, segue there, Chris. <laughs> to I don't know what. <laughs> so, all right, so you felt forced out of academia because the adjunct system is, and in my experience with it, it kind of mirrors what you said. Um, and I wasn't an adjunct professional, but my experience working with people who were, actually, when I first started my business, most of the freelancers that I hired were adjunct professors Absolutely. trying to make money at night. That's yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. You need the money. Yeah. So that's how we got started. <laughs> but, um, okay, so that was at Winthrop. Um, and then you started getting these gigs online no not online you started getting these gigs and you were working on the weekend how, how did did those come because you were a professor and you were networked or how did you start getting no, scoring gigs? um when i was in when i was doing my masters i was actually working in a music store and a guy came in and said i need to buy a compenser microphone and i was like mm, that's not how you say it <laughs> uh, yeah what do you what do you need this for and he's like well i'm doing a movie and i gotta i gotta do some voiceover and i was like okay well here's my card and when you have to do music you know i'd love to help because i had never had the opportunity i always thought it would be cool and then it just kind of happened and like six months later he called me out of the blue and you know for for whatever reason he decided he would let me score his film that's awesome and for whatever reason it worked and um you know it went around and did a bunch of decent festivals uh florida atlanta philadelphia probably five or six more won some awards if you do and if you do one thing you know and it works people will tend to come back so help me understand this like when i watch a movie there's some songs in it that i recognize like it might be that jet song, dun 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 dun. Oh, yeah. You mean every movie you've ever yeah, right. seen yeah. <laughs> that has that song in it? Yeah. And then and then there's just music that happens that I don't even notice. I'm I'm caught up in the dramatic kind of impact of the of the movie. So obviously scoring would be the latter, but is it also 
the former? Are you involved in picking out no. soundtracks? Um, no, that's or? Uh, picking out soundtrack songs is the role of a music supervisor, and I I do um, play that part on occasion, not for films, but a lot of times I'll I'll pick up what I call music supervisor gigs from people who need to license music. Okay, so you know how to navigate that to some extent? Absolutely. Actually, I own another company called Toondogs.com. Go check it out. And uh, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a partnership with some other music producers in this area, and we represent a little more than a thousand songs that we license to, to film and television. We just got some placements or some opportunities, I should say, with uh, Adult Swim and with CNN and their series, uh, death row stories cool. and it all comes back to who you know I mean the the CNN thing the the post-production supervisor there is the same director who hired me for my first oh, yeah. scoring gig so that yeah that's yeah. yeah I think that's a role that is becoming a bigger and bigger deal because I think we're moving into an age of where that song selection means more than it has in the past there's like that which I hate to say the guy's name now because everyone is, is angry at him, but Zack Snyder, you know, he loves to open a movie with this slow-mo montage and he just picks just the right song to put over it. And that's becoming a bigger and bigger deal. Um, he's the guy, he made the watch, Zack Snyder's Watchmen, right? And he, he just made, yeah, and 300, and um, he yeah, blew up 300. Uh, he made Batman versus Superman, but he continually will open his movies. I don't know if Batman versus Superman does it, but he's, I know Dawn of the Dead did it, um, and the Watchmen does it. And it's this idea of like, just picking just the right song over the image and it's become that's becoming more and more prevalent and i was reading about the it's like a team that selects the music for girls the hbo series and that's like this, that's like a huge part of shows like that that you pick just the right song and i don't think it's as big of a thing as it used to be you know well, it's becoming more important than the narrative quentin tarantino is one of the masters I, I was about to say i mean he he kind of broke it into the modern culture and if you look at the history of film the the popular song was was originally something that started creeping in around the 1950s and 60s and you had a lot of crossover where they were intentionally trying to place popular songs in films so that the album would then sell later and this also has to do with the fact that the film companies also own the record labels so they're um, just doing product placement basically yeah and i mean not the not the like so how, show how the sausage is made, but like Quentin Tarantino gets, he, he gets a lot of credit for picking great tunes, which he does. He does get to approve them. But like, uh, if you look at, at what happens with like Pulp Fiction, if you look it up, every song that was chosen from Pulp Fiction is on the same record label. And the music wow. supervisor from Pulp Fiction is the president of that record label. Wow, yeah. You know, and there's a partnership there. It's intentional. Right, yeah. but not always, because I will say one of my favorite writer-directors is uh, Richard Curtis, who he blew up when he made Love Actually, and um, recently he made About Time. He's actually only directed a couple of movies, written a lot of movies. Um, and music, popular music, not just the score, but popular, like pop songs, are a major part of Richard Curtis movies, and to the point that he mixes the songs way louder than most people do because if you really look at how music is mixed into a lot of movies if a pop song comes in or a rock song or whatever it's actually mixed pretty low um but richard curtis <coughs> movies they tend to he tends to mix them really loud and uh, i was suspicious of this and then i actually heard him admit in an interview that he always writes to music and it's always kind of at random like on his playlist and he says more often than not the song he hears will inform what he's writing and he and if he's directing he cert he makes sure he's he's aware of what he wrote a scene to and he makes sure that song gets into the scene wow. and i think that's sort of the truest most organic form of using pop music in your movie is like he's writing into that music and he makes sure it gets in there 
Absolutely. I mean, and another thing that, that pop music does, and this is also why people have films scored, is that you're trying to you're trying to create an immersive experience for the viewer. You're trying to suck them into the story, and you're trying to use their life experiences to help guide their emotional experience of the of the media, right? And you know, when you're scoring something, you use tropes. You know, minor chords make you feel sad, major chords make you feel happy. Different things, crescendos or speeding up tempo brings in excitement. You use these things; they're tools. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily manipulative. It's just you know, it's just it's just the way to, to guide people. It's, a yeah. it's like a biological truth about how humans react to sound. Absolutely. And if and if you want people to have a specific reaction, what better thing to pull than a pop song that they're already predisposed to have an experience, an association to, um, a relationship with. They understand the meaning of the lyrics. They already have all of this backloaded stuff you know i heard a story that uh and i don't know how true this is but it's one of those urban legend things that george harrison and um what was the guy that produced most of the beatles stuff uh, uh sir uh he just died yeah um george no not yeah it was george wasn't it what was his name oh geez, sir you got me you got me george stumped. papadopoulos nah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Somebody Google this right quick. But anyway, um, so it was him and uh, George Harrison decided to write that song. Um, it's gonna take time, a whole lot of precious time, or whatever it is. You oh, know what I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the urban legend goes that they said, you know what, we ought to write a, like a number one hit. And just, <laughs> and just totally like knock that out this weekend. Yeah. And so they, they brought all the tools to the table based on their understanding of music. And they wrote it backwards. Like they didn't write it from you know, someone expressing themselves and then hone it as far as, um, George Martin. That's it, George yeah. Martin, yeah. They didn't hone it as far as, you know, making it better with those tools. They started with the tools. They were like, okay, well, we want to start off and get buy-in, then we want to, like, have a crescendo. You know, they, like, put together the entire formula of a number one hit, and they created one. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that's the way it works. I mean, people don't really uh, understand that pop music is, is formulated by intention. I mean, it, you know, the Beatles, since we're on that reference, were the masters of pop music until recently when they were surpassed by Max Martin, I think is his last name, um, who's a Swedish guy that has written all of the music that people associate with teen pop. Britney Spears, from, from her all the way through through Taylor Swift, to, I mean, everybody. I mean, he's this guy's yeah, that got... one man is like so many hit songs to his like name. Like more than 500. That's incredible. It, and, it's, and, it's, and it's a formula that people buy into, and there's there's ways to do it, you know? But the thing is, I'd be, sh I'd be really shocked, and this is just a philosophical, fundamental belief for me, I'd be shocked to find out that if on some level, Max Martin, as many great pop songs as he's written, doesn't at some point, whenever he writes every single one of those songs, hit this point, where he hears the heart of that hook and stuff and is like, that's it. Yeah. Oh, that's the money. And gets Absolutely. excited and gets Absolutely. excited. Absolutely. I don't think you can, I don't think you can make things like that. I mean like that, uh, Shake It Off, uh, Taylor Swift, you know, that it's a pop song for the masses and it makes a lot of money. And it sounds that you could point to all these things that, that's a great pop song. And you could point to all these things that make it sort of like, oh, well, of course you write that song right now. It's, it's following up, uh, the, um, the, uh, Happy, the um, what's the guy's name? Uh, Pharrell song, Pharrell, Happy. Yeah. You can you can hear how it comes after Happy, and there's all these reasons why it's a calculated event, but it is like an exciting pop song. To you know? say something as simple or formulaic is not to say that it's not art, and it's definitely not to say that it's not 
excellence in craftsmanship. And anybody can get excited about that. I mean, you know, even to, uh, talking about the other weird things I do, a lot of times. Whoa, 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 now, hold on. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times I'll, rec I'll record sound for people, you know, I'll go out on set. Like today I was on set, we were recording this bizarre thing. Other times I'll go to corporate events. I was at a corporate event where they were bringing, it was a grocery store, they were bringing their new supplier of ham to this, to this event. I mean, what could be more blase than, than a guy that makes deli meat? And this dude had passion yeah, like, nice. like any artist I've ever met. And I mean, he was so amped up about how good his ham was. Right. <laughs> and I mean, it's true though. It was, I'm it, lost. Was, <laughs> it was inspiring, man. It was inspiring. Awesome. I was like, you know what? Yeah, I that's awesome, dude. Love to well, make let me, let me, let me ask Chris um, and Silent Micah, as filmmakers, like, and you guys have kind of, from my interpretation, I mean, you kind of have only recently moved out of uh, this paradigm where you're kind of imagining, controlling, doing, writing, directing, acting, you know, doing everything because you're DIY, you do it yourself, and you're only recently moving into where, oh, we're gonna get, we're gonna get some good actors, we're gonna get another person who's gonna direct we're gonna get somebody who's gonna shoot this you know and you're thinking about highest and best use and different so as you're moving into that as as creators what how, what are you thinking about scoring and like music and god i love this question yeah i know it's a Tell great us. question i will say and i will say for me like in the because i am a musician i have traditionally uh scored the music for the stuff that we do however I'm 100% open to hearing what other people would put there. And, and the thing is, is like in a bigger view of that question, um, I'm very excited about the idea of film and story as a collaborative thing. I, I, don't, I have no ambition to ever be Stanley Kubrick where I'm like over people's shoulders and like telling them that this goes this way. And, yeah, and I see, I see this 100% in my head and it must be this. Um, I, I, I mean, I love Stanley Kubrick and everything, but I think the idea of a story being a thing that isn't yours, that a group of people can find, and I mean, I, I and Silent Micah could say this if, if we hadn't cut off his tongue earlier, but, um, but I even, right down to the performances, I like the idea that the actors are so bought in that they want to tell the story and they want to find the story, because I think that ultimately you're finding a story, and to think that you are so single-minded that only you can tell the story is a mistake. And I think that if you look at the history of what went on, that's why George Lucas made really great Star Wars movies when he was young and made awful Star Wars movies when he was older is because early on he was open to collaboration with a bunch of genius artists. And when he got older, it became, oh, Mr. Lucas, yes, Mr. Lucas, yes, we, we agree, Mr. Lucas. And, I, I, and because the thing is, I think when you do that, you are, you're buying into the silly modern notion of the hero. Uh, in real life, and the idea that a single man comes out of the and is the hero, and I think that you're when you do that, you're forgetting about human history, all of human history, which says to you that we we do this, we well, find the story. The hero yeah. is to inspire the group, right? right not right. not that, to exactly. squash and control thought. Exactly. I mean, the hero you know, jumps out first and everybody else then rises up and contributes. And, and not to do the hero's will, but to find in themselves yeah, exactly. the thing that the hero has pushed them to find. So they come together, yeah. Sound. How important is sound? In, in, so oh. important. More important, I, I would argue, in, in a lot of ways, I'd argue more important than image. I would too. And, and that's, I mean, obviously I'm biased, you can prosecute me on that, but um, there's plenty of evidence that, that would support um, 
support this statement. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because because sound is you can't you can't you can't forgive it in a lot of ways. A great a great technical example is uh, you know how many how many images does it take to fool the eye that that there is actually a moving picture? It's twenty four, right? How many how many audio images? How many samples does it take to fool the eye? About forty thousand. I mean, fool, fool the ear. About forty thousand. You know, yeah. The, the ear is pretty sensitive, you know, and, it, and it, it's a hard thing to sell a lot of times, especially early on in an independent filmmaking. Unfortunately, it's the thing that people people neglect the most. Um, I think you'd have a lot more well, high-quality indie Simon films. Well, I've heard Mike scribble onto his chalkboard that he... Um, Help me, please. <laughs> Help me, please. <laughs> please stop referring to me. Well, I can't, I don't understand what that he means. <laughs> Tickle him, something will come out. Yeah, I've heard him say, well, that, that could be horrible. I've heard him say, you know, stuff, I, I can't even paraphrase, but the idea that, you know, the, the first cue to anything, any crappy film is that the, the sound's crappy. I mean, like, you, you can't transcend crappiness without good sound. And you can't fix it either. I mean, that, you know, I've my, one of my favorite things was a long time ago. I took that that meme of Batman sm smacking Robin. People always say, "Oh, fix it in post," and fix it now. Yeah, I mean, you fix right. it on set, sound especially. I mean, it's there. I've seen a lot of films where it's like the sound is just a disaster, and the only thing that you have left to do is is to try and fix it in post, and that's expensive as yeah. hell. Yeah. You know, and it's it's time consuming, and you just it's just a mess for the independent filmmaker. And it introduces all kinds of weirdnesses too. Yeah, you get you get those American English movies with English overdub that look like old Japanese kung fu yeah, flicks. Right. right. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Looping's hard. I think to some extent, and I don't know why this is, with images you can. I personally think like some of my favorite images in movies. I love silhouettes. And, um, and I love when Indiana Jones is walking, you know, and he's holding his hat in the desert. And, and there's something, every time I see a silhouette on film, my heart just explodes. And I think that's because a silhouette asks your, your mind to make something, you know, to fill something in. And it, and it, just, it just taps into this elemental part of how our minds work. And it's an abstraction. And it's like right, Picasso right. or something. It's like you're abstracting the human form into this simple, right. very simple image. Right. And there's no equivalent of that for sound. Yeah. That doesn't exist for sound. It's, it's hard. I think, I think it doesn't really work with sound, but I think you can do this, this illusion um, or eluding through music a lot of times. Right, yeah. you know, and that, that happens in storytelling where you, can, where you can foreshadow and you can foretell. Well, John Williams is one of the masters of that. Yeah. Right? yeah. 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 He t tells such a story. It's, it links things together thematically and content-wise. I mean, I see these images of him standing up in front of the uh, symphony and the videos, you know, the movies playing behind them, and yeah. and I have this notion that they're just like creating this on the spot. How does that work? I mean, is it really oh, happening spontaneously? No, no, no. no. It's it's planned. It's planned to the T. Um, scoring is a is a is an I'm exercise good. in planning. Sorry um, to interrupt, but I just want to point out that Fugazi. Is on here at Millstone Pizza, and that's worth noting. And it's, yeah, it's also heard. very, very important to say that Fugazi just reunited for a special. But that was a fake. Was it really? It was an April oh, Fool's joke. I'm sorry, it's my fault. I put that you on put Facebook. That it's my fault. It was an April Fool's so joke. I'm so happy. There was an April Fool's joke that people posted that oh, I saw sad. it. I'm sorry. I saw it after <laughs> April Fool's that people posted that um, Fugazi was going to get back together and make an EP because of 
Donald Trump and talk about it. And I was like, oh my God, that's awesome. And it turns out, I saw it like yesterday, two days ago, whatever. Um, turns out it was an April Fool's joke. So I caught it late, so well, I didn't. I know. mean, I always plug this guy relative to Fugazi whenever it comes up. There's a, there's a dude named Chad. He's in a band called Beauty Pill. And um, he actually knows, uh, he's on Discord. He knows the Fugazi guys. He engineered some of their records. And uh, they're putting out great, great stuff. So if, if you love Fugazi in the dis Discord record, uh, Beauty Pill. And it's local here? No, 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 it's DC. DC? Yeah. Beauty cool. Pill. That's yeah. the band or the label? That's the band. It's on, it's on Discord. All right, cool, yeah. man. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. I think it's and this Discord. is actually, guys, this is off their second EP. This is early, early. Well, I think it's Pandora or something, so who knows? <sighs> wow, it's great. Anyway, I digress. Yeah. What were we talking about? Yeah. <laughs> what were we talking about? Yeah. So, so you know Fugazi, obviously. Are you, um, are you versed in the kind of the, the DC punk scene? Oh yeah, I, I grew up uh, indie punk. I mean, since since we've been sitting here, we've heard, you know, uh, the Violent Films, uh, her Pavement a minute ago, one of my personal favorites. Um, you know, all that stuff. I mean, even even more local out of the Raleigh scene. I used to love Archers of Loaf. Oh, and, man. Archers yeah. of Loaf was my Nirvana. Because what yeah. Nirvana did for most people, it didn't happen for me, but Archers of Loaf did I, that for me. I, I did not know Archers of Loaf. I saw them at Lollapalooza 3 on the side stage. Wow. And it blew my mind. Wow. And, you know, Very then cool. after that, we all followed them around for a bit. Yeah. And then they disappeared. It was sad. So, I mean, from the same area, I guess you're familiar with Super Chunk and that. Oh, kind yeah, of yeah, thing. sure. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, our uh, IP attorney that I just got an email from saying we got the trademark on the Givolia logo, which is in trade and uh, tagline, which is good news. But he used to uh, defend. Uh, no, no, he used to defend against the lead singer of a Super Chunk. What's his name? Oh, I can't remember. I remember. He worked for Merge Records, though. Well, yeah, but hold on, it's a different story. Okay. Playing pickup basketball. Oh, uh, yeah, he used to defend against the lead singer of Super Chunk. They would play pickup basketball, and they would always be uh, matched up against each other. And so he, he knew the guy from Super Chunk. But then I thought that was cool. Yeah, yeah, no, those are the days, man. I, I, I'm a strong believer that the, the music culture that I grew up in, which is between 1990 and 2004, was, was the last great era of rock and roll. It was the last great evolution of the rock and roll idiom. There's still great stuff happening and bubbling under the underground, but because of very complex things that we could not even begin to discuss today, it's it's not really gonna it's not really gonna evolve like it used to, you know. But, but, and but people see, don't find that stuff as readily as they used to. I'd argue that partially because all the things that were happening in punk rock have now bled so much into the mainstream. And so it's it's just changed the culture. I think that the like I think Kurt sure. Cobain. How do you Kurt Cobain killed himself because he couldn't he couldn't be anti-culture. He the culture would not allow Kurt Cobain to be anti. That's not why he killed himself. But I'm saying like no, our culture would not allow him to be anti-culture because it said, oh yeah, we'll put this in in Target. We'll put this in Walmart. Yeah, let me, let me check us all here okay, in our in our glorifying what we grew up on and say. I mean, how many generations would say that the rock and roll they grew up on was the last well, freaking frontier true, of rock true, and roll? True, but it was, it was a passion source for us. And I'll give you a great, another little anecdote. I remember the days of trading tapes, of talking to buddies, of reading zines, of going to the record store and flipping, trying to find something that I could then share. Like a minute ago, we're just dropping beauty pill because it's something I'm trying to get out there. But kids today, 
they don't have that same mentality. A perfect example, I teach, I still teach guitar lessons. I'm addicted to it. Um, so one night a week, I still teach over at Woody's and I'll see kids come in and you know, they'll be in the prime, 15 years old. That's like when you're supposed to like be getting into music. And, and I'll say, I always start, cool, tell me about yourself. What do you like to listen to? What do you mean? What bands are you into? I don't know. Well, what do you like to listen to? Pandora? They associate with apps and with technology, and then they don't go any further to convert into that so the, the scene. The content is just a, what is ever streaming from that source. Yeah, and it's almost meaningless in a lot of ways. I don't know, man. I don't want yeah, to bum I don't, you out. No, I just, but at the same time, you're comparing, <laughs> you're, you're, at the same time, you're comparing kids in the 90s who were seeking out counterculture music yeah. versus probably just contemporary kids nowadays. I mean, it's not like you can't find that now. So even though I said I think punk has bled into the mainstream, there is absolutely still punk and there's absolutely still counterculture, sure. which shouldn't, almost shouldn't be possible. Honestly, I would argue that because of the internet and because of the, just the dispersion of information and culture, you but almost shouldn't be able exactly to. Exactly the purpose of counterculture is to blow up when it can't be possible. And I exactly. need to say right, this, right, right. Mike has got to be at a Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> event in seven minutes. <laughs> and so I'm gonna have to say that, oh, be quiet, Silent Micah. I'm going to have to say to the world that we're going to have to agree to agree and somewhat disagree around this topic, and we will, uh, we will drink and talk until we all agree and shake hands and go home. Yeah, but, I love it. But it's been a pleasure to have you, Joe. I'd love to continue this conversation. Man, I feel like we're just getting started. Um, if we didn't have this time constraint, we would continue. But um, you are – I hadn't even asked you the question, why in the hell are you in Rock Hill? But, but I'm going to leave by saying, you know, you are here in Rock Hill, you're over in the uh, tech park or across from York Tech, you're doing incredibly creative things that can only exist in an economy that's broken up into micro little pieces and functions. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's all happening right here in the place you decided to stay because you grew up here. You're not, you didn't have to go to LA, you didn't have to go to New York. No. And I mean, and quickly in the, in the two minutes that we have left why here um why here um because i can because uh family because um because it just happened that way um you know i i, I don't want to leave I, you know i'm happy here i'm i'm comfortable uh doing what i do and and watching it grow in a different kind of way and and we'll see what happens man i love a world where you choose place and people and then you make money yeah. secondly you know what I mean yeah I mean you choose place you choose people you choose passion yeah and then you make money that's right I love it that's the world I want to live in so thank you Joe it's been thank a pleasure you. to have you on the show yeah it's been fun yeah Chris final words I can you want to ask me why why here for me no Okay, I have a great answer. Why, why, why here, Chris? Why here? I, I can only go to the bathroom at home. <laughs> so I can't get very far away. Yeah, I, I'm literally like an hour away as best I can do. That's awesome. Um, uh, Silent Micah, you want to wrap us up here? Well said, well said. Nice nod. Yes, that's nice. I appreciate it. And John? Nice. All right, well, we're going to end on those wise words, and um, I guess we'll see you next week on Old Town New World. That's it. Soundslikejoe.com, tunedogs.com. <laughs>